Hey, thanks for joining me on our first ever bonus content sermon video. That sounds so exciting, right? It probably sounds way more exciting than it's actually going to be. But this is where I'm going to tell you all the stuff that I left out of the normal sermon. Uh, for time's sake, we just needed to, to push some of it. I thought about calling it like the director's cut of the sermon. But then I feel like that makes it sound like we're going to have curse words and things like that, which we're not. It's uh, really the reason I'm doing this is because there's a couple of verses right at the end of the section that we looked at on Sunday. And I didn't want to have to just like skim over these verses because John says a few things here that are really important to us. And there's a couple of things even that could be and have been misconstrued through the years. And so I wanted to make sure that we had time just to dive into what he says. I'm going to assume that you heard the sermon uh, on the first part of the section in chapter 5, and I want to tackle the, the second part of the, the section in chapter 5. So we ended off on verse 13 in 1 John chapter 5, and the big idea of that sermon was, hey, a lot of stuff matters, but nothing matters as much as Jesus. you got to hold on to him tightly and hold on to the rest of the stuff with humility and with grace and with gentleness. Uh, but then we're going to dive now into verse 14. So if you have a Bible, I want you to follow along with me. We're not going to put the, the words on the screen, so you're going to have to follow along. I want you to read it for yourself. 1 John chapter 5, verse 14. He has just said that if we have Jesus, we have eternal life. Now he's going to hit us with two things that we also have, three things that we know, and one warning. Here's the first thing that we also have. Verse 14, and this is the confidence that we have towards him that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests that we have asked of him. So John says, like when we're focused on the essentials, this core of Jesus being the Christ and believing in him, that that gives us a sort of confidence. And he ties that confidence specifically to the act of prayer. Now, on the surface, if you just read these verses, it appears like he is saying that anything that we pray for, we will get. And I've actually, I've heard some people teach it that way. But if we just take a second and we pause and we dig just a little bit deeper into these verses, we realize this, that what John is actually doing is he is talking about prayer in the same way that he saw Jesus teach on prayer. So the key phrase that will unlock this section is the, the phrase, according to his will. The point of prayer is the will of God, not the requests we pray for. That is the focus. And this is actually how Jesus taught too. Prayer is not about changing the will of God. It is about aligning ourselves to his will on earth as it is in heaven. You remember, of course, when Jesus taught his disciples to pray, that phrase, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So the point is this. If you trust that you need Jesus, if you trust that Jesus is who he said he is, that he's your savior, then you will find yourself having this confidence John is talking about. And the confidence is that what he wants for you is actually what you want for yourself because of what he's done for you. And practically what that means is, like if we trust that Jesus is the Christ, then our desires are going to be refined and we're gonna find that the things that we actually want will tend to be a little bit more according to his will because we're confident in who he is. And because of that confidence, we're confident he always hears us and so we're willing to engage with him on anything. 
Now, here's what this looks like for me, just like as I think about prayer and as I try to live this out personally. Um, I tend to, with God, just try to, right off the bat, if I'm praying, just pray for what I long for. Like, I just try to ask God for, for the desires of my heart. So, like, if someone is sick, I, I pray, God, we help them get better because that is what I want. And I, I pray that without hesitation or without just kind of fearing or wondering, well, is this really the will of God? Because I know God's not going to be offended by the sort of prayer where we just ask for what we want. But also in that prayer, because I have confidence that Jesus knows what I need more than I even do, sometimes out loud, I'm just going to ask God, hey, God, will you help me understand what you're doing in this moment? So I might pray, hey, Lord, heal this person, but also help us understand what you are doing in this moment and prepare my heart to see how you're moving. And even if I don't, help me to still trust you with it. And so that, that kind of are the words that I attach to this sort of a verse. You can find your own words. I just think the important idea that John is teaching us here is that the confidence leads us to pray in ways that are aligned with his will. And our hearts become more aligned with his will as we trust him with confidence. We have that confidence because of the mercy of Jesus, because we have the eternal life that he's given us. So that's the first thing he says that will also be true of us. But then he gives us the second thing. He says in verse 16 this, If anyone sees his brother committing a sin, not leading to death, he shall ask, and God will give him life to those who commit sins that do not lead to death. There is a sin that leads to death. I don't say that one should pray about that. All wrongdoing is sin, but there is sin that does not lead to death. This is a little confusing. What, what he's talking about, or the essence of it, is he's talking about helping others grow spiritually. And, and he says, when we believe in Jesus, when we're centered on who Jesus is, we will begin helping out brothers and sisters who are struggling with something. We'll begin praying for them. We'll begin helping them seek life in that. But he throws out this thing that's really confusing. What is this sin that leads to death? It's debated quite a bit. A lot of theologians and Bible scholars debate, and I think what that means when there's a lot of different opinions on an issue is maybe we don't totally know what the author was intending to say. A lot of theologians will say that what he's talking about here is that there are moments in the Bible where God kills someone as a judgment for a sin that they've committed. I'll be honest, I don't totally understand those moments. I don't uh, totally understand why that happens in the scriptures. Uh, I don't think that is what John is talking about here. First, uh, just a couple observations. Observe, in this section, he is talking about eternal life. So I don't think he is going to flip and then suddenly start talking about physical death. I'm not sure that's what he's doing. I, I think what he's talking about is spiritual death of some sort. So the opposite of eternal life would be spiritual death. I think the second thing we need to observe, though, is this entire letter, he has been talking about this issue of denying that Jesus is the Christ. This Gnostic idea that, that challenges that Jesus was really God or that he was really human or that maybe we need something else besides Jesus to be whole spiritually, that's what he's talking about. And he's, he's pushing back on that and saying, no, Jesus actually is the Christ. So I could be wrong, but I, I really think what he's saying is this. Denying Jesus is the Christ is the sin that leads to spiritual death. I think that's kind of the, the concept here. Spiritual death, it's wholly connected to this question of what do you do with Jesus? 
Um, and, and so John, I think he's pointing to this guy who's the villain of his book, this guy, Serenthus, we talked about in the other sermon. Uh, and he's saying, this is a guy who is choosing spiritual death and there's nothing you can do about it. And John even says, I, you know, I don't even know that you should pray for it. He says, this is not a normal sin. Pray about normal sins, but this thing, this whole denying Jesus thing, that is in a totally different category. I'm, I'm not sure you come back from that. There's a part of this that I think, uh, despite kind of the strong language about sin that leads to death, I, I think we shouldn't miss the part of this that should be deeply encouraging for us. Because what he's saying is, your God is so full of grace for your sin. Like, like you cannot outsend God's grace. Like it is impossible. There's always more grace and more mercy. And no matter how much you and I sin, there's always more grace. But he's also saying that that grace is 100% embodied in the person of Jesus Christ. And I know there's a lot of people in our world who are confused about Jesus. That's okay. There's even grace for that. There's like grace upon grace upon grace from God. God is eager to give all of us life. But what creates death is this arrogant denial of the only source of grace, Jesus Christ. That's what this man, Serenthus, was apparently doing. And like John takes that and it's like he puts it in this different category of sin. But for our stuff, for our sins, he's trying to be really encouraging. He's saying, hey, if you have faith in Jesus, there's not a sin that you could commit that our God couldn't bring life out of. I mean, think of, that is a generous statement to say about our sin. Conversely, though, if you attack the identity of Jesus the way this man was, it, like it, it separates you from that source of life, and so you don't have that grace. And I always get hung up here. I, I play the hypothetical game where I like to ask, hey, could Serenthus have ever like changed his mind? And like re could he have embraced Jesus at this point? And I, I think he could have. History tells us that he didn't that this, this was something that kind of persisted for the rest of his life. Uh, but the way that John describes this in Greek, he's not saying uh, this sin will cause his death right away. He's saying that he is on a trajectory towards death. Like that is now your trajectory because you are denying Jesus. Is It is towards spiritual death. And it's serious enough to John that he says to these people, listen, this is between him and God right now. There's not a lot you can do for it. It's just between him and God. And so on one hand, I think what John says in this passage is incredibly encouraging because we can't out God's grace. But on the other hand, there's something a little sobering here because this is how important the identity of Jesus is to John and to all of us. It is the determining factor between eternal life and spiritual death. Now, He's going to end with a handful of statements, and it's almost like the pace picks up a little bit here. He says three things that we know. First, verse 18, we know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning, but he who is born of God protects him, or God, he who is born of God protects him, and the evil one does not touch him. 
And again, easy verse to misuse, he is not saying that we actually stop sinning like it ceases for the rest of our life. He is just saying that God is at work in you. God is working in you to shape who you were created to be. And this work of God is progressive in us. So if we really trust Jesus, if we're going all in to say, hey, Jesus is the Christ, then it becomes harder to just kind of keep doing whatever we want because we trust him. God is protecting us. It's it's harder to just keep on uh, sinning because God is continuing to shape us. And the weirdest thing will happen as you trust Jesus. You'll find that you actually desire to sin a little bit less. And what might first happen is you'll find that when you do sin, you're a little bit more uncomfortable with it than you used to be. As we grow close to Jesus, that just kind of naturally happens. That's what John's talking about here. Verse 19. We know that we are from God and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. And he's saying, listen, we've been set apart from the corruption of this place. This is kind of another shot at those Gnostics. We as believers belong to Jesus. And that's why we're not trapped in the power of this world like the Gnostics were saying that we are. Verse 20, we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true We are in him who is true, in his son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. He's just doubling down on this. This is the passion of John's life, that uh, knowledge and understanding that we need is not a secret. There's no like spiritual password you need, like the Gnostics taught this. It is just knowing Jesus. That's all you need. And John was passionate about just drawing people back there again and again. Now he ends his letter with this, verse 21. Little children, keep yourself from idols. That's a good idea. You know, it feels a little awkward, right? Like that's just, he just ends it. It's like it comes out of nowhere. Um, And I always wonder, like, was this just something he threw in because like he didn't know how to wrap it up? He's like, "Uh, little children, keep yourself from idols. Or like uh, if you picture this was a sermon, was there someone in the back like, hey, Come on, wrap it up, John. We got to go. And he's like, oh, okay, uh, I see my time's about up. Keep yourself from idols. Like, it, it, it almost reads like that. But whatever the reason, I think there, there is an obvious connection here with this abrupt ending. An idol is just anything that we are going to worship instead of God. Uh, John's been talking about Gnosticism, Docetism. He talks about this guy, Serenthus. Like, like, these people may not have been worshiping a physical idol, uh, but uh, all of them, and this, these concepts, were hanging on to something instead of trusting God. And I think what John is saying here is, listen, Jesus has come. He is the Christ. He is now the sole object of our worship. Nothing else is all at all is worthy. There's no other God, no philosophy, no spiritual experience. It is just Jesus. And I think that really is the point of the whole book. And maybe this is a way that we could think about all of this stuff. Like Jesus is the Christ. That is the center of our faith. We draw a circle around that and we focus there and we're gracious with the stuff outside of that circle. And part of this warning of keep yourself from idols is a warning to say, don't put other things in the center with Jesus. That's how it starts to be idolatrous. Nothing else is worthy of that central focus of our faith. It's just Jesus. 
Now, I, I know none of you are Gnostic, right? Like none of us are believe in Docetism or some of these concepts that we've been talking about. But that doesn't mean we're not susceptible to this sort of idolatry. I think it happens all the time in our world. I was, I was trying to think of examples, and I could probably list a hundred of them. Um, but you know, the, the better way to know what our idols are in this world um, I, I would just say, look on social media. Uh, social media has become this way that we can broadcast to one another the idols in our lives. Is that too? That might be too harsh. Maybe I'm overstating that. I, I, I don't know. But I, I, I just, I, I want us to think about this issue of idolatry, and how these Gnostics were doing it in John's day, and it's not like we've just stopped. We're still doing it in our day. Here's a question that maybe could guide us. What in your life is constantly fighting to crawl into the center with Jesus? What is that thing that's constantly like just drawing your attention to it or, or that thing that's always in the back of your mind? Or what, what is that thing that you're tempted to focus on and think about to the exclusion of other things? That's maybe the idol could be an idea, could be a cause or a position uh, and some political issue, could be an experience that you're constantly chasing. It could be a wound or a hurt that just is uh, fixed in your mind. I, we can make an idol out of anything, can't we? Like we're constantly adding things to that center with Jesus. But whatever that is, I think the way John ends this book is just this important warning. Hey, could you just keep an eye on that thing? Like, could you name it? Could you say, that is my thing? That, that is one of the things that I'm constantly drawn to. Could you just like watch it? Could you just take steps to make sure that that doesn't crawl into the center with Jesus? And that really is a good place to end uh, John's conversations about Jesus. Uh, with just that, that prayer and that warning. Keep ourselves from idols. Keep other things out of the center. Keep Jesus the focus of our faith and of our life. And that's the blessing I have for us today. It's a simple blessing. May you keep Jesus the Christ in the center of your life. May you resist the temptation to add other things to that center. May you resist the temptation to add other things to the place that only Jesus is worthy to hold. May you hold tightly to Jesus, and may you be gracious about the rest. Thanks for joining me with this bonus content. I'm glad you're here.